welcome to Interpreting India. I'm your host, Suyash Rai. This is the 75th episode of Interpreting India. Thanks to our wonderful guest and thanks also to you, our dear listeners. Interpreting India has grown steadily since it started in August 2019. The podcast has about 400,000 unique listeners and consistently ranks number one in the government category in India. And now here we are with the 75th episode. So we thought that we'll do this episode somewhat differently. As you know, Interpreting India is truly a team effort of Carnegie India. Scholars at Carnegie India take turns hosting the episodes. Usually, each episode has a scholar in conversation with a guest. For this episode, we are turning the hosts into guests. I'm joined today by seven of my colleagues at Carnegie India who have previously hosted this podcast. So in this episode, instead of going deep into one topic, we will talk about many things across the three domains in which Carnegie India works. These are security studies, technology policy, and political economy. You will, I hope, get a flavor of the insights of the scholars at Carnegie India, drawn from the years of work that they put in in their respective domains, and hopefully it will all add up. So let me quickly introduce you to the guests for today's podcast, my colleagues at Carnegie India. From our security studies team, I'm joined by Rahul Bhatia, Rudra Chaudhary, Shivani Mehta, and Deep Pal. Rudra is also the director of Carnegie India. From the Technology and Society team, uh, Konak Bhandari and Priya Darshini D are here. And Anuj Berman joins from the political economy team. Conspicuous by his absence is Srinath Raghavan, who started this podcast. He was the first to host this podcast. And uh, although he's not here today, it is primarily because of his initiative and the continued efforts of our wonderful comms team that this podcast has continued has, and has grown from strength to strength. So let's get started. Hello all. Welcome to Interpreting India. Hi. Hi. Hello, sir. So uh, maybe we could start on the ground with land <laughs> and then eventually we'll move to space and other uh, domains. So I want to come to you, Anurudh. Uh, I know that your primary area of interest is in land markets. And over the last eight, nine years, you've done a lot of work, uh, especially since you joined Carnegie, but even before that, you worked on land markets. And land, as we know, is a key factor of production, especially in some domains like manufacturing. Uh, and if India has to succeed in growing its economy rapidly, we need to uh, have well-functioning land markets uh, for various reasons, for urbanization to work, for manufacturing to work. So let me pose a broad question to you and uh, please reflect on it, uh, take your time. And do you think that regulatory architecture for the land markets is actually up for the task to support India's journey towards becoming a prosperous economy? And if not, what are the key binding constraints that exist in this regulatory landscape? Thanks, Ayush. And it's great to be here with my fellow colleagues uh, to record this episode of Interpreting India. Uh, to your question, I think we should go back maybe a few decades to just take stock of where we've reached in the last uh, 40 to 50 years, if not more. And one of the consistent trends that's happened along with higher economic growth in India has been the process of growing urbanization. And that's been a consistent pattern over the last three to four decades. And it's sped up over a period of time, especially since the 1990s when economic growth really started picking up. Now, what this has done is on the one hand, it has put increasing pressure on major cities, on metropolitan cities and state capitals of various states in India. Uh, there's been an, an influx of migration, but also growing pressures on land to 
facilitate different kinds of economic activity to facilitate the transition into manufacturing to facilitate increasing industrialization and also to facilitate the increasing shift to services related uh, economic activity on the other hand what has happened and is also now incre- increasingly happening in rural areas is that there's been a shift to non farm activities and to non agricultural activities so this is also leading to a shift in how land is used in rural areas what this means is that agricultural land is getting increasingly repurposed for different kinds of uses and this also means that a lot of laws and regulations that were there for the protection of farmers and for agricultural lands need reconsideration so we are going through these two processes one is an increasing burden or pressure on urban areas on major cities especially and the other is the rapid shift in land use in agricultural areas and rural areas now where do the role of regulations come here traditionally we've had regulations that try to enforce a particular vision of urban development on the one hand and in rural areas a particular idea of how farmers should be protected and how agricultural land should be treated now this is all getting increasingly contested and challenged as economic growth keeps occurring so what we need is to have land regulations that are more permissive that are more flexible and adaptable on the ground however most of our regulations tend to lock in a particular kind of uh, vision of planning and urban development in practice what this means is that we have very low levels of fsi requirements which do not permit high rises from coming up we promote a de-densification of urban areas so that cities spread out over large areas and then those become very hard to govern and plan for and in rural areas we have problems where it is not very easy for land transfers to take place between farmers and non-farmers between farmers from one state to another and so on and these actually increase the transaction cost in all these markets and on the one hand where we have these restrictions it's not that land markets are not functioning so in spite of a lot of these regulations we do have growth taking place we do have new forms of economic activity taking place but what it means is that it largely relies on discretion and permissiveness so it is basically a question of who can get away with trying to bypass or flout regulations and to what extent what that means again is that the transaction costs are very high so going forward if we need to use efficient use land efficiently we actually need to figure out how to rationalize some of these regulations so these transaction costs can be minimized so i'll stop here so i want to pick on one thread of what you just mentioned towards the end of your answer is this question of informal adaptation to the formal constraints so you have laws and regulations which you think are constraining the growth of urban areas constraining the actual demand for use of land for different purposes in urban and rural areas and you are saying that basically growth is driven by informality if i'm hearing you right that people are actually able to transact these markets but it's just that they are relying on forbearance by the state or capacity of the state lack of capacity of the state actually enforce the laws that exist and if these laws are actually uh, enforced then many of these transactions would not happen and i can relate to it because i live in delhi and in delhi you see these 
planned areas and then there's the village areas where pretty much it's a free market, quote unquote. But but there are also problems that, that go with it. Like, for example, because you don't have even the most basic safety-related regulations being enforced there, over-densification in some areas, infrastructure is very poor, even though the market is working uh, to some extent. So how do we go from this equilibrium of where basically the laws have their own um, in life, but the real actual economic activities have very little to do with it, it seems. And people are basically adapting and counting on uh, forbearance by the state to a situation where you have some kind of a adherence to the laws, but much more of a rationalization of the laws. What are, what are the two, I mean, three main things that can be done to shift this equilibrium towards a more kind of a uh, realistic formula, formalization, let me put it that way, that actually takes into account on the constraints of capacity, actual demands of the economy, but also keeps in mind the necessity of infrastructure, safety regulations, and those kind of things. So let me amend my previous uh, response in, in trying to answer this question. So it's not that informality is the predominant mode of urbanization. There is a large degree of state-led development and urbanization and urban planning, especially when the government tries to take over or extend urbanization or urban areas to new areas and does urban planning and so on. So every now and then we will see the role of the state in trying to refashion or redevelop certain parts of cities or to extend the boundaries of cities. So in those cases, we do see a lot of formalized activity taking place. The problem that you are alluding to is the is trying to reduce the scope of informal, informalization within the land market. And one way to do it is, like you said, just to rationalize a lot of the laws and to try and overcome the local political economies that try to prevent these laws from being rationalized. So one issue that has persistently plagued major Indian cities over the last 20, 30 years is the issue of slum development and slum redevelopment. And how do you actually formalize them? Now, the technocratic answer is pretty simple that you can have a legal response and you can pass a law to formalize a lot of these settlements. And some state governments have taken initiatives in this regard. Orissa is going through a massive slum titling project. Bombay has had a 20, 30 year old effort to redevelop slum areas with mixed success. So the technocratic answers are there. It's a question of how to overcome the local political economy that tries to prevent it from happening or that is basically trying to benefit from this state of affairs. And that's where local politicians, state level politicians have a role to play. Uh, and then it boils down to what mechanisms of governance you actually try to create so that you can actually have the best chance to formalize or to rationalize some of this uh, activity. Just one more follow-up on this. Are there positive I mean, devi deviations that we see? Are there states that are doing it better? Are there cities that have uh, managed better on, the, on these counts? Yeah, there are definite examples of cities and states that are doing better. Many of the uh, rapidly urbanizing states uh, are actually doing a fair job of trying to urbanize much better. And one noteworthy point is that actually the slum rehabilitation issue has decreased in importance over the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's a very positive indicator of how governments have tried to 
uh, resolve this issue. Not to say that the problem has gone away, but to that extent, there has been a degree of success in how governments have tried to address this issue. The other example is, of course, cities that are coming up in new areas where a lot of urban development authorities have a chance to implement new ideas on urban development. So if you look at cities like Gurgaon, where new ideas of urban development, more private sector-led development is taking place. Those are some examples where we can actually see that new ideas are being experimented and hopefully those will translate into successes and will also be replicated across other Indian cities. So as we started by saying that land is a key factor market and uh, often we say that India has punched below its weight when it comes to manufacturing. Uh, and many I mean, people disagree on why that has happened, but quite a few of them agree also that failure of factor markets are very important and that land, labor, especially to some extent capital markets as well. There were issues with I mean, starting and closing enterprises when so different factors of markets were not working very well. And for various reasons, India has punched below its weight when it comes to manufacturing. Now, Unarka, I turn to you. You work on uh, semiconductor supply chains. And given the background of India's, I mean, I would say relative failure on manufacturing for many, many decades, this uh, semiconductor mission has been designed to attract uh, funding, basically, on on uh, creating some capacity for semiconductors in India and basically creating uh, space for India in this in the semiconductor supply chain. So what do you think uh, of this uh, I mean, ambition, this India's desire to become a part and an important part in the semiconductor supply chain, given the background conditions here? I mean, what are the bets that India should be making how it should start, where it could go, what are the points of entry for India, given the fact that India is not exactly a big manufacturing hub as of now. So, so yeah, thank you for that question. I'll start off by, first of all, touching upon the reasons why India has you know, thought about having its own semiconductor policy. The first is the geopolitical reason. In the pandemic, we have seen that there was a shortage in many industries, and but this was not unlike any other sectors as well. There were various sectors at the time who basically saw a shortage in the products uh, the semiconductor industry actually overproduced at that time as well. So there was actually more production in that year compared to the years before. But just that the demand at that time exceeded the overall uh, supply. And that was the case because of the you know, pandemic leading people to work from home. There was a demand and a surge in demand for computing devices. And essentially, a lot of the industries, the automotive industries, which had seen a fall in uh, demand, the supply chains were basically repurposed towards, uh, towards personal computing devices. So essentially, uh, when the pandemic sort of you know, subsided and uh, the automotive industry and the other industries came back online, they wanted to basically you know, restart that supply chain, but it wasn't there. So there was overall a, a need felt that this might be replicated in some other industries as well. So as we all know, right, semiconductors are basically the driving force behind various, uh, you know, uh, I think, electronics, but also as it happens to be uh, the industrial 4.0 revolution, as they're calling it, right? Basically, 5G, you know, AI, robotics, quantum computing they'll also be driven by heavily by semiconductors as well. So there was a need felt that, you know, we saw, I mean, we saw a shortage in the semiconductor industry plaguing various end-use industries. This might possibly play out in these critical industries as well. That was the geopolitical reason why India felt the need to sort of have a policy at that time. At the same time, you know, for the longest time, there was this thing that supply chains were basically built on uh, efficiency. So just-in-time efficiency, basically meaning that most companies would probably stock supplies for about a month or two maximum. Uh, what this led people to believe is that we have to build supply chains for resilience as well. Essentially make sure that, you know, we don't just have enough to last over a month or two, but there should be actually a longer term plan in play over here. 
So essentially, we have seen in globalization as well. This has led the uh, supply chain to become more globalized. But at the same time, while it has been fragmented, we've seen that there's a concentration as well. So you know, chip design is concentrated in a few countries. Manufacturing is mostly in Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, you know, semiconductor manufacturing equipment like EUV machines are mostly in Netherlands. And you have the software used to design these all tools in the U.S. So while we have seen a fragmentation, it still remains heavily concentrated. So the plan for India is to basically come up with a policy which can address, you know, address the supply shocks in the, in the short run. In the long run, I think India would actually have to integrate itself clo- uh, closely with the global supply chain. But for the short run, India wanted to have a policy which could sort of address a short-term supply shock. Now, coming to the commercial reasons, you, you know, mentioned that India has lagged behind in electronics manufacturing and uh, you know, generally. Uh, the PLI scheme recently has you know, shown some promise. There seems to be the, you know, data coming out that the PLI scheme is indeed picking up. And uh, the PLI scheme has mostly been taken up by companies like Pegatron, Vistron, and Foxconn, which are, assembly, uh, which are essentially assembling these components in India. Now, assembling all these components in India is fine. But I think what would really help is if the manufacturing of these components also took place in India. So I think the entire POV, you know, from the POV of these the companies, I think it would be more sensible to not just import these components from overseas and then assemble them in India, but also to manufacture them in India as well. So there is that bit. Uh, I can go and speak about the possible policy issues in the current semiconductor policy if you would want me to you know, elaborate on that. But uh, Yes, why not? Okay. So the sense I got is that the policy is very well done. Uh, you know, it's, it's got massive subsidies and I think it's enough subsidies for two to three you know, chip makers to come to India. The problem is that there's a perception that while the policy is promising, you know, the ease of doing business remains a big roadblock, which is the, basically the, like the main rationale behind the PLI scheme was also to offer subsidies because the government realizes that there are heavy transaction costs, mm. which is trying to offset by giving you know, subsidies in the PLI scheme. So the government is saying that we can't tide over the problem in like the factor markets overnight, mm. but we can make it up by offering you subsidies. If that is enticing enough for you to come over here, then you should certainly you know, give it a look. The problem is that companies still feel that there's a perception India is a very difficult place to do business in. And despite the policy being good, uh, eventually you will need land, you will need you know water supply, electricity, power. Now, whether those things can be supplied in a consistent manner without any interruption with the cooperation of the state governments, that's an issue. So I'll just give you an example. In the nodal agency under the METI, which is basically going to be screening the applications, is the Indian Semiconductor Mission. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very promising agency. You know, it, it seems to be having an advisory committee, which has got the who's who in the world of semiconductors. The problem again here is that it's not an interagency committee. So the U.S. has this thing called the CHIPS Program Office, which is basically an interagency commission, which, comply, which comprises people from the U.S. State Department, the you know, Department of Commerce, various federal uh, agencies as well. The ISM, on the other hand, doesn't have any linkages with the other ministries or any other agency. So if it's trying to, you know, sort of convince someone to go to Gujarat or say Karnataka, there's that linkage is completely missing over there. So that's probably one thing. Uh, I would say other issues which come up in the policy are that, uh, so for example, when you, like when it comes to chip design, there's this body called the CDAC, which is the Center for Development of Advanced Computing. Now, they have been given the task to basically vet applications for, for chip design. But the problem there is that the amount offered is basically on a reimbursement basis. The, uh, the amount offered for the foundries is basically on an upfront basis. But for whatever reason, best known to policymakers, the chip design money is going to be given on a reimbursement basis to the people who need it the most upfront. 
Mm. Essentially, these, these are, you know, startups which don't have access to any capital at all. So the amount offered is also not that much. It's 15 crore rupees. And then there seems to be a lack of clarity as to what will happen once this money is fully, you know, utilized. Like, will the VC firms come into play over here? Will they pick up the slack? Will they sort of, you know, continue funding it? That clarity is not there. Uh, secondly, I've seen that globally, a lot of these incubators, like, like say, you know, CDAC, so Taiwan has this body called the ITRI, which was very instrumental in sort of incubating TSMC. Now, what they did was they actually took an equity stake also in these companies. So they do fund them, but they also take an equity stake and then they spin them off. And that money, which they, you know, which they basically then recover, is used to fund future startups as well. So that seems to be something, again, which is missing in the, uh, you know, in this chip design policy. And CDAC doesn't seem to have any sort of uh, way to give an equity financing. Uh, even loan guarantees. So in the US, there is this belief that loan guarantees have a sort of like a multiplier effect mm. in the sense that, you know, if you sort of act as a guarantor for the loan, then it encourages more funding to come down the line. Even this instrument is particular, you know, is, is actually missing in the policy as well. So no, this is very helpful. But I, my question to you is a follow-up question on this is that there's semiconductors and then there's semiconductors, right? There's a large number of possibilities in terms of the uh, how advanced technology is and which generation the technology is and and then there are the electronic products that are related to semiconductors technologically so if you can make them then it becomes easier for you to make semiconductors as well but if i look at the overall electronics manufacturing in the world india is a bit player in fact we punch below our weight in manufacturing exports but even do much worse on the electronics exports so if you were to pick as a as a as a policy person, if you were to advise the government about where we would start, right? Well, if you want to encourage some aspect of electronics manufacturing in India, and then maybe eventually get to more advanced kind of semiconductor manufacturing, what could be some of the low hanging fruits? You know, where you can start and build some capabilities and go further? Should we just go for the moonshot in the first go? Uh, so, Suresh, so I would say that there are already some industries which I would have personally. Uh, I've spoken to some stakeholders. And they've identified a few industries in this regard. And I think number one on the list is the electric vehicles. Mm. India has done well. I think recently there was reports about Tata Motors pushing out its 50,000 uh, electric vehicle as well. And uh, the policy is currently undergoing a recalibration. They're trying to uh, incentivize battery makers to also manufacture in India. But I think these batteries also sort of use a lot of semiconductors as well. Mm. And there is this belief that rather than, you know, as you said, aiming for the moonshot, there's a possibility that we can address electric vehicles because they're likely to see a massive uptake in demand in the next five to six years. So that's one industry. Uh, other industries identified are point, uh, are point of sale terminals. Uh, basically, these are industries which have seen a robust demand in India already. So I think we can probably think about that as being one of the other industries which can see semiconductor demand. Right. Uh, then I think drones are also sort of being spoken about as a possible end-use industry as well. So, you know, for now, I think these three industries can be the subject of... Because uh, India has, you know, a healthy... Demand either forecasted in these industries or already we have seen demand in these industries basically pick up. So, yeah. So from one product market to another one, this is about no, defense manufacturing. I turn to you, Rahul, now. So, I mean, you know, in the last few years, self-reliance in defense manufacturing has become a, a crucial part of India's art uh, or self-reliance uh, kind of push. Uh, that government is making, Prime Minister himself has been talking about it. And government has actually been taking policy decisions. They have created lists of products that will only be I mean, domestically procured and so on. And uh, with the Ukraine war, <laughs> there is now, I mean, further, I think, in, in impetus on India to diversify its kind of sources uh, of I mean, 
procurement for uh, for uh, defense uh, weapons, but and also perhaps do more domestically, uh, not just rely on other countries. So uh, my question to you is a broad one. I mean, if you can just take some time to explain to us where we are in terms of domestic uh, capabilities of making uh, defense equipment and uh, what needs to happen to you know achieve greater self-reliance in, in this domain. I mean, a big picture view and then perhaps we can follow up. Thank you, Suresh, for the question. So I think, first of all, the idea of self-reliance in defense manufacturing is our new one. We've been trying to do this for many years. In fact, in the late 70s and early 80s, we sort of launched uh, a lot of projects to develop weapon systems. So the the light combat aircraft, which became the Tejas, comes out of that. The Pinaka rocket launcher system also comes out of that, as well as the Arjunian battle tank. Um, so some of these projects have been realized. Um, but of course, we continue to rely on importing weapons to sort of equip our, equip our armed forces. Um, in terms of current uh, defense manufacturing in India, most of it is sort of focused on licensed manufacturing foreign equipment, as well as some indigenous equipment. Um, but so we're at that point uh, right now. And in terms of trying to get to a point where um, there is more self-reliance, it'll sort of have to come in phases. Um, but we need to start acting right now uh, in order to build it out. And it'll take many years. Um, so the most immediate need is to sort of enhance the existing capacity to manufacture equipment. Uh, but here, the focus um, should not be on licensed manufacture, but on tying up with foreign firms to sort of bring about um, co-production and also co-development. So the recent deal, which sees uh, the Airbus uh, C295 being manufactured in Gujarat, uh, is a great example of something like this. Um, so here, essentially, you have 40 or so aircraft being manufactured in India uh, with the, the work that Airbus does in Spain being transferred to India and uh, the aircraft is actually manufactured using components which are also manufactured in India. So this is sort of what we want to aim for. Um, but a key caveat over here is also ensuring that the Indian defense partner is able to absorb the technology from the foreign partner because in many cases this has not happened. Um, and the other important thing to try and bring about is also bring, uh, building up domestic expertise through such um, agreements. Um, the other thing is that the, the state-owned entities, the defense public sector undertakings, which are responsible for both designing and manufacturing weapons in India, have sort of grown efficient over the years and reforms are required to enhance the productivity. So in, in many instances, um, it's actually cheaper for us to buy a weapon off the shelf than to manufacture in India under a license because um, the DPSUs tend to be a little inefficient. Um, apart from this, we also need to sort of allocate a greater share of resources to these entities, especially those developing weapon systems. Um, and the sort of more important piece of the pie is the defense private sector. Um, so, uh, ironically, yesterday, um, Bharat Forge, which is manufacturing after pieces, received the first export order for a defense private sector yeah, firm. Yeah. Um, but generally, in order to create a robust industrial defense base, you need the defense private sector. And um, the defense private sector is currently in a nascent stage and makes a very modest contribution to defense, India's defense acquisitions as of 2019. This was less than 5%. 
Uh, but it has a lot of potential. And a good start to sort of increasing private sector participation is trying to create a more level playing field between the public and the private sectors. Um, and the sort of important aspect here is also bringing about, um, sorry, rather involving the defense private sector in R&D. So right now, the government agencies like the DIDO are developing new weapon systems and then sort of outsourcing their production to the defense private sector. But we need to get to a point where the defense private sector is able to sort of innovate on its own and develop weapon systems on its own. And for that, they really need to invest in R&D. Uh, but at the moment, many players don't consider it worth their while to actually do so. Um, they prefer to just be the manufacturing partner. Um, so they sort of need to be, let's say, in, uh, incentivized to invest more in R&D. And the last thing is supporting um, defense startups. So defense startups um, are really important because they are going to develop sort of next generation technologies that will go in your future weapon systems. Um, so something like the IDEX initiative is a good start, but a lot more can be done on this. Well, I want to pick on one point that you said is about, uh, yes, you're right that India has been trying to achieve self-reliance in defense manufacturing for many years. And the primary way in which we tried to do it was to establish the public sector enterprises to, you know, to create and manufacture these, these weapons of systems. And the experience has been mixed. There have been some successes, but many failures and also a lot of inefficiencies. And you said that going forward, we need to harness the private sector capabilities as well, build and harness those capabilities. And a key to that is to create level playing field. But we know from experiences from other sectors that when you have large public sector enterprises, then they create their own political economy and pressures. They have power to be able to sway policy, to get preferences in many ways. So, I mean, I'm not expecting you to ask your full answer, but what would be some of the key elements of creating a level playing field? So I think one important thing is that a lot of projects are reserved for, um, let's say if, if a weapon system is being developed, then it's reserved for the DIDO or its manufacturer reserved for uh, a DPSU. So that is something that can be changed. Uh, the other aspect is that foreign firms are incentivized right now more to tie up with uh, defense public sector undertakings as opposed to private players. So that is, again, something that can be changed from a policy lens. Yes, but um, in terms of generally involving the private sector more, uh, the reason why a lot of uh, private players are not interested in taking the plunge and actually developing weapon systems is because they feel that there is no assurance of orders. So if they invest a large amount of money developing a weapon system, they feel that the Indian armed forces will still pick whatever the DRD was made. So I don't know what the solution to that is, but that's something to definitely think about. I guess uh, some of these problems will only be solved by experience. That once they start experiencing a level playing field in practice, they'll start trusting perhaps the uh, landscape better. Now I come back to Kunark again. Sorry for picking on you multiple times, but uh, so because the theme is similar, because we're talking about defense, yeah. where we have had for long a uh, public sector dominated kind of approach to uh, doing things. Another area in which we've had a similar approach is space. And we've had quite a bit of success in that area, if I can say so. Say so. I don't know whether you agree. So uh, ISRO has in many ways defeated the odds to place India as one of the basically six space-capable uh, nations. So what do you uh, make of the next stage of India's commercial space ambitions? And uh, what would be the role that 
publicity enterprises like ISRO can play in that? And what are, what is the role for the private sector? So that's a great point that ISRO is, has made India one of the six space-faring nations. But add, add to that, that there's only one nation despite this, which has the capability to be a fully-fledged commercial Mm. You know, a nation which has basically incubated commercial enterprises, and that's the uh, the U.S. So the reason why that has happened, I think there are various reasons, but I, if I can boil it down to a few reasons, is basically that for the longest time, you had this belief, even in NASA, that they should be the ones undertaking the nuts and bolts to everything. Uh, this view has now undergone a change in the last few decades in, uh, in the U.S., but they've opened up the vendor market to other people as well, like SpaceX, Lockheed Martin, Boeing. But even there, there was for the longest time this perception that there was a monopoly of sorts. There's this joint venture called the ULA, uh, the United Launch Alliance, which is a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. So for the longest time, they were the only ones who were sort of bidding and getting the contract for supplying components to NASA for, you know, rockets. SpaceX essentially challenged it. They, they basically sued NASA like in, a, like in a federal court. They were advised not to do so. They were told that you should not sue, your, you know, sue the biggest uh, customer you have. But they actually went ahead and did it, and then they actually won a favorable verdict. So I think the opening of the procurement reforms are sort of, you know, allowing other players to come in and sort of bid at lower prices also helped. Uh, second thing I would say is that NASA has this thing called the OTA, which is called the Other Transactions Authority. So essentially, it allows them to enter into federal contracts without much scrutiny by the GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office in the USA, and the equivalent of India's CAG, I would say. So they don't have that much of leeway in the GAO to scrutinize these contracts if a few certain agencies in the U.S., including NASA, enter into it. So India would probably have to come up with like a similar mechanism where it allows this row to choose the vendors of its choice. Number two, I think uh, in India, uh, procurement has been a problem because so far, ISRO does not really outsource all the heavy manufacturing to anybody else. I know lately there has been news about the PSLV being outsourced to HAL. Last in two, bro. Mm. But even it remains to be seen how that will actually like you know play out because we haven't seen the like the end product over there. Currently, the vendors who do supply to ISRO are not allowed to sell their IP in the open market, which is a major you know disincentive for people to come and supply to ISRO in the first place because ISRO is supposedly owning the IP as well. Uh, that's a problem. Number two, I would say why US has done well in this regard is technological innovation as well. So SpaceX basically came up with this concept of a reusable rocket. And that has brought down costs from what I've read by a factor of four. That's been a major reason why. So an example, if I can give you is that imagine if a flight takes off from LA to New York and you basically discard the entire flight by the time you land in New York and then build a new plane to go back to LA. That was the basic model earlier. With the usable rocket launches now, basically you can have this thing where you can use the same rocket five, six, seven, eight times. And that brings down the costs by a lot. So India would have to see some startup or maybe some company come up with a similar innovation for that to happen. Uh, number three, I would say is, uh, so, you know, if you can sort of make it a part of everyday citizens' life, if you can make space activities, so what I mean by that is, if you can make applications like, say, you know, precision farming or, you know, agriculture or, you know, like navigation, if you can make these things a part of the average citizens' life, basically how, how they go about using these space applications on a daily basis, that will probably propel the end use of space even more. So I think, for example, satellite connectivity in India, right? That's something which is a bit of an issue because currently the perception seems to be that if you want to use the services, you essentially have to pay for it. And the companies which provide the spectrum have to basically auction, have to basically like, you know, a bit for an auction. So there is the new telecommunications bill, which provides that the government can give it administratively as well, which is exactly what these space companies have been asking for. 
But for now, I think, you know, the perception also is that given the 2012 Supreme Court order, we said that the idea should be to maximize scarce, you know, scarce natural resource like a spectrum. There's still no, no clarity as to how to go about it. Like, do we, do we auction it? Do we give it administratively? What is the way forward? I believe if it's not auctioned, it'll probably make it easier for people to actually access it in India. I mean, generally, you know, downstream. And that will probably drive the end use of uh, satellite services even more. So that's, I would say, uh, for now, I think are the few, you know, ways India can probably catch up with the U.S. in this regard. So after that 2012 judgment, there was a review petition also filed in which the Supreme Court actually revised its view and said that revenue maximization need not be the only uh, objective. So, I mean, obviously, public interest can be served in other ways, but it has to be taken into account. So the government does have the freedom, at least as far as the Supreme Court stand is concerned, to choose how to allocate the spectrum. Uh, But it has been very conservative on this front because of uh, fear of being accused of uh, rent seeking (laughs) and fears that have dominated our political economy for a decade now. So uh, on this issue of uh, getting uh, commercialization of space going, so uh, how how do you see the pathway of the existing capabilities that we already have? And in many ways, ISRO has done quite well, I would say, among the public sector initiatives that India took (laughs) since its independence. And... uh, and it's not necessary that a public sector enterprise cannot commercialize, cannot do better on, on this front. But what are the key kind of things you think we need to change in, in, in the current setup of space administration to make commercialization a key priority for them and to make, make it work sure. better? So I would say, first of all, we should have a space bill. There is no space law in the country. It has no, there's no clarity as to how to go about, you know, setting up a space company in terms of if you're seeking investment from a foreign company. There's no clarity on the FDI limit. Yes. People believe that it's a 74% automatic route, 26% remaining is to the government route, but it's not really clear as to if that's actually the way or not. So a space activities bill would really help in this regard. I know there's been talk about a space policy, you know, being in the offing for the longest time, but it's not really, you know, uh, come out yet. So I think that would help. It would, it would probably provide, you know, clarity to people both in India and outside India as to how they can go about investing in India. Uh, that would be the first thing. Second thing I already mentioned is the, you know, procurement reforms. You'll have to sort of give a chance to startups as well, even those who have no track record, right? Because you're essentially building tech here, which has not been done before. You're basically trying to provide novel technology. So when you have the the uh, the tender, you can't really be, you know, closing out companies which have no track record because they're precisely the ones who you want to invite. You want to basically invite companies which have a new product, which have a new novel technology. By going back to the same players, and again, there's the issue of IP rights as well, right? I mean, if you have people who are sort of completely captive by stroke, You'll only attract the bits and pieces players. You won't really attract the ones who really want to develop tech, which they can sell overseas as well. So I would say procurement, I would say, you know, clarity on the investment regime would be a good start. Is there a space space bill in the works? Yes, there is. There's a space activities bill and there's a space policy in the the works. And where is it now? Well, as per press reports, it's been close to being released for a long time now, but uh, nobody really has clarity on this so far. So yeah, but it should be sometime soon, hopefully. Now, I want to come back to you and kind of tie these different threads together into a broader question about India's future as a tech-first nation. And India is sometimes called a tech-first nation. And do you think, the, I mean, what, how well does India's policy architecture do in terms of uh, being prepared to support, you know, uh, this next decade of tech-led growth in India? 
Okay, so this is a very broad question. So let me take a stab at the parts that I can try to address. Because you are our resident philosopher, so we thought we should. I thought that was your life and times <laughs> question to you. So I think one commonality I see across a lot of what Konark, uh, Rahul, and I were talking about is the idea of how do you create the potentialities for innovation by reducing transaction costs and by introducing some kind of regulatory certainty. And I think in technology, we've done this a little better than say land markets, where the focus has been a little too much on consumer protection issues rather than the focus on growth. And at least in areas like data, startups, uh, and startup related innovation, I think what the one thing we've done well is to capitalize on the human capital that has been created over the last 30, 40 years in India. And we've done this by creating the public good part of what the government needs to do, which is to create the hard infrastructure. So we've had successes, successes in building out broadband access, internet access, keeping telecom rates low, improving mobile and internet penetration. And this has created the enabling conditions for a lot of the startup-led ecosystem that is coming up in India now. So I think that's been a big, big positive that we've seen in the last 10 to 20 years. We've also seen liberalization in FDI norms, which have allowed foreign firms to come in to invest in India. So going forward, I think there are two or three challenges that are going to become more and more salient. One is the issue of data regulation and governance and privacy and the uncertainty around what kind of architecture in terms of regulations and compliance this will create for not just for big tech firms, but also for smaller firms who will be using a lot of consumer data. And the cost of compliance or the cost of incremental compliance by smaller firms will be much higher than big tech firms who have already, you know, sort of internalize a lot of these costs. The other is as we digitize more and more and social media proliferates, we will have increasing tensions between national security versus economic growth and the benefits of social media. And this has already played out in different instances in the last four or five years. And we haven't found good answers that can serve us for the next decade or so. The third, which is more linked to uh, the current nature of the startup-related economy is the changes in macroeconomic conditions that are taking place in the last year or two. And what went on in the last decade or so was that the US Fed and central banks in Europe and other parts of the world kept interest rates low, which led to a lot of liquidity that then got uh, transferred into a lot of tech firms. And to some extent, that enabled a culture where growth was the uh, driving motive rather than profitability. So people sought to invest in trying to capture the market rather than to focus on profitability. And that has changed completely now. So the current environment is challenging that kind of a business model. And it will... It's to be seen how a lot of the the tech players, the startups actually adapt to this. Uh, Linked to this is the 
uh, fact that we saw last year that uh, and this year also that a lot of startups that then grew to a certain size and then came forward with IPOs in the Indian stock market, they have actually underperformed significantly. And that's also led to some kind of a rethink on the nature of these business models. And it's actually challenged a lot of this way of trying to build a business. So these are some things that markets will have to adapt to themselves. It's not something that policy can do much about, but policy architectures and actions by central bankers and so on do have impacts on this. Uh, Another implication that flows from this is the idea that competition law, that antitrust should actually try and go after monopolies and big tech firms in an aggressive way. And to worry about whether these tech firms are going to be dominant in perpetuity and therefore going to, you know, uh, monopolize these market and abuse the markets and abuse consumers. Now, what we are seeing right now is that a lot of the dominant market players are suffering losses. They are being challenged because of these conditions that I'm talking about. So at least some of these concerns may be solved by the market itself. And we might see that the kind of proactive attitude of antitrust regulators might need to be tapered a little bit or might need to be restrained to some extent. So there's a lot going on because the current situation is one of flux, but we need some kind of a data regulation and governance architecture to complement the hard infrastructure that we've built, mainly to build some kind of market certainty. But also we need to let these market forces play out to see what will be the next kind of development in this area. So if you start a company today, there's a really high probability that you will fail in the next few years. And that's the way the startups work. Enterprise, what we see is survivor, survivors, and there will be 10, 20 failure, failures for everyone that survives and flourishes. And uh, in, when it comes to the regulation of enterprise, starting and closing enterprise, a major reform we did, uh, which you also had a play role to play, was the bankruptcy code. And uh, it will be key, I understand it, in the success of our startup economy to get the bankruptcy piece right. That if you fail, if you build an enterprise, it fails, you'll be able to easily close it and kind of move away and do other things. Uh, that's the broad question. But also specifically, uh, what's going on in the individual bankruptcy uh, part of it? Because that may be relevant for, especially for smaller startups, where a person is just starting and putting their own money into it. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a linkage I hadn't drawn when I was talking about it and thinking about it. And I think uh, a lot of the early optimism about the insolvency and bankruptcy code has uh, come down a lot, mainly because we haven't seen the kinds of recoveries that we were expecting once this law would be enacted. And the reasons for these could be varied. A lot of people point to capacity constraints in the National Company Law Tribunal, where there's a shortage of judges, there are a lot of cases pending, and the delays in the judicial process. The other is also related to the uncertainty around the law itself, because a lot of the provisions of the law have been reinterpreted or interpreted in some cases in a way that the law did not actually contemplate. Hmm. So one example of this is uh, the provision which said that as soon as you can provide a proof of default uh, to the court, to the tribunal, the tribunal has no option but to accept your petition. 
but the supreme court has now said that the tribunal can actually go into the merits even at the stage of admission mm-hmm. which makes it harder to file an insolvency claim and it is not in the spirit in which the law was actually written so there are a lot of uncertainties that have come about some of them were i think bound to happen for example there was the issue of where homeowners would uh, fall in the entire insolvency process under the ibc uh, once a real estate company goes bankrupt or goes under insolvency petition and some of these issues could only have been resolved over a period of time but a lot of the other issues that are related to uncertainty reinterpreting very core parts of the law those need to be resolved the other part is of course that the main professionals who are supposed to run the ibc process the insolvency professionals that professional development is also taking time uh, your other question was about the individual insolvency portion and yes that's actually very critical to uh, say startups or small enterprises who are trying to take risks and it's important for them to have a easy exit and then to reenter uh, the market and the individual insolvency portion of the law has actually not been notified it it is part of the ibc but it's not been notified for the last 6 uh, years now uh, i'm not entirely clear on what the reasons are uh, but it would have provided a good forum for entry and exit for individual entrepreneurs and also for people who become financially insolvent due to different economic shocks at various stages of their life mm-hmm. and this could have actually increased the risk taking appetite within the economy as well right. but that's not happened for a variety of reasons what are the reasons why i can only guess i think one predominant concern is what forum a lot of these applications will go to should they go to normal courts should there be a specialized tribunal uh and this is a concern because unlike corporate insolvency these are individuals who could live in any part of the country who could have very small claims so one issue one big issue is definitely of trying to create the right forum or trying to find the right forum where a lot of these people could go to and i'm not very clear on what the other reasons are on this so now i want to segue into a different topic altogether which is i mean in the security studies team is working a lot on china india's relationship with china and i want to now turn to the colleagues in the team to understand the history and the future of this relationship as they see it shivani i want to turn to you. Uh, china is among india's largest trading partners yet the contentious uh, border does little to build political trust between those in beijing and delhi Uh, how do you interpret the historical and contemporary architecture of this crucial relationship thanks to yash um i think this is a very broad question and scholars before me have spent entire careers looking at specific aspects of just this relationship so i'm going to do my best and try and sort of lay out the history of the relationship because i think that's important in not making a prediction of where the relationship is headed but at least understanding how we got to the current position that we are in right now and um, especially with india and china the understanding india's history through the lens of the india china relationship is an interesting way to understand india's development story india's economic growth and as well as sort of 
political ambition, global ambition. I think largely the India-China relationship has been studied in phases, which kind of starts off in the late 1940s to 50s, where both these nations have emerged from the control of imperialists. There's a lot of ambition in both countries. There is scope for growth and also a lot of international attention on what these two sort of Asian powerhouses are going to achieve. Um, But that kind of takes a downturn in the 60s when there is some disagreement on uh, the issue of Tibet uh, eventually, there is a war in 1962 between India and China, which was considered very humiliating for India. And uh, following that, there is a sort of cold peace, but also let's not address what happened, uh, especially on the Indian side, we you know, kind of brush it under the carpet, uh, focus on domestic growth, focus on emerging as a nation, uh, a new independent nation. And... Um, that slowly progresses into the 80s where you have an understanding that both India and China need each other to develop and that their relationship cannot be sort of, cannot hinge on this boundary question or territorial issues. So that's when you have the sort of Rajiv Gandhi and Deng Xiaoping consensus, um, as some people call it, where putting the boundary issue aside we will focus on other aspects of the bilateral relationship, whether it's trade or uh, people-to-people cooperation. And, you know, the the relationship will continue keeping that boundary issue aside. This was also, interestingly, the period where there were a lot of agreements on how to tackle the boundary issue. How do we address it? What are the mechanisms that can be set up? So while there was no focus per se on the territorial question, we also see that both countries kind of wanted to work towards some kind of solution, or at least there was a political willingness towards a solution. I think that continued till about 2015, 17. uh, But since then, there has been what I would call a different phase in the relationship. There's been an increased, like you said, political uh, mistrust uh, between the two. We have seen increasing number of standoffs uh, along the LAC between the two countries. And we are currently at a point where there is a standoff that's been ongoing for, I mean, since 2022. And India has come forward to say that normalcy in the relationship and again how do we define normalcy is a whole question in itself but is unless the boundary question is addressed mm-hmm. we cannot go back to how things were uh, prior to say 2020 or even i would say 2017 20. so that's where india and china are at right now mm-hmm. and i think if theoretically we want to kind of break down what are the options going forward, although I would be very careful to make any kind of prediction. We could say, okay, so either there is an escalation of the conflict, which starts at the LSE and, you know, you have another 1962 war kind of thing. The other end of that spectrum is there's peaceful, there's partnership, India and China kind of uh, agree on 
multiple issues, whether globally or between the two, and which again I think is unlikely given the current scenario. Um, which leaves us with two options that are kind of in the middle. Uh, one is coexistence, and the other is coexistence with some kind of sort of rivalry and cooperation, like a flavor of that. So, I mean, I wear my political economy hat, which I always wear. <laughs> um, I mean, there was a time when we were basically equals in terms of the material base, you know, of our economies and our hard power, but even though India has done reasonably well in the last three decades, China has done much better. And the delta between the two countries is much larger now. So how does, how does that change the structure of incentives compared to India? Understanding China's motivation is, is a very fascinating area of study, mm. um, especially because that entire, the, the entire Chinese system is so opaque. Mm. It's very difficult to understand uh, you don't know what goes behind decision-making. You don't know what were the other uh, options considered while making a certain decision. And that's true for India as well when it comes, especially um, with regard to its relationship with China. We don't have a lot of information in terms of what were the other options considered, why was a particular um say, why was the decision to uh, ban Chinese apps uh, mm-hmm. in 2020 taken? There is there is no, you have press reports saying what happened and who did what, but what were the calculations taken by the political uh, sort of machinery to arrive at that conclusion that that is the best way to address this issue? Um, we can all speculate, we can all look at the economic angle, the strategic angle and you know, domestically, how would it reflect uh, for to the Indian population? But uh, there is no sure way of knowing what went happen behind the scenes. And I think that is a deliberate attempt, uh, both on India's as well as China's part, to not, I mean, obviously no country will want to lay out uh, their cards uh, when it comes to national security, but uh, there seems to be a little bit more caution when it comes to dealing with China. Then, as you said, the, when we banned the apps, basically, India decided that border issues will not remain separate from other aspects of the relationship. Do you think, I know, I, I, I heard what you said, that it's hard to read the Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I hope it's hard to read our <laughs> strategic community as well. That's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you were to read the tea leaves, uh, <laughs> do you think it's changed, made any change the Chinese stands on it in terms of uh, how do they see their position on the border issue? Has there been any change in the, the Chinese, Chinese position? That's a very interesting question, but I don't think there's a change in terms of China's sort of demands when it comes to the, the boundary or where it stands in terms of which part belongs to mm-hmm. which country. But I think there is recognition of the fact that there is a change in how uh, India is going to approach the boundary question forward. And there is an acknowledgement of that. You spoke about economic incentives, uh, sort of guiding relationships. And I think both India and China acknowledge and agree that there are significant economic costs and benefits Mm -hmm. that come with the relationship. And they're both mindful of that calculation. My sense is China is just observing 
and being sort of, you know, taking careful steps when it comes to India. But um, yeah, I don't think their fundamental demand or intention has changed. I mean, yeah, you may have a demand, but when conditions change, you have to compromise and maybe uh, change uh, the timeline for the demand to be met. Deep now, I, t- I turn to you again, staying with China. So, do you think armed coexistence with China is the way forward? Uh, and if so, what impact do this have in uh, India's relation with other neighbors? Uh, thanks, Suresh. And I'll, I'll start with what uh, Shivani said that it's obviously very difficult uh, to, to try and predict. You know the direction that the India-China relationship will take, um, but but it's it's interesting to look at this uh, question, especially now so soon after uh, China had its twentieth uh, party congress, right? Because that has given us an indication of how China sees itself, how China sees its place in the world, um, how they see the international in- environment, right? As as they as Xi Jinping begins his <coughs> term, and and <coughs> how they approach India is is a subset of this overall. So one of the things that we see here is that China seems to believe that it's period of strategic opportunity that it has talked about repeatedly over the last 20 years seems to have been replaced by a more challenging global environment uh, where they see possibilities of interference, international interference in their in what they consider their affairs, right? So that's a starting point. Now, obviously, this refers largely to the structure and competition with the United States, but it also uh, includes other allies and partners and friends of the United States, including India and how India behaves. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, that means that as China, and, and again, this is something that has come out of the party congress, right? That China believes that it is the rightful claimant to the top of the international order. And this is one of the major objectives that we have going forward over the next couple of decades to become the preeminent power, replace the United States, or at least attempt to replace the United States and become the preeminent power, right? So, if, if we look, look at uh, China moving forward through this lens, what it indicates for India is more rigidity, more intransigence in the way it operates with India, right? Uh, will that <clears throat> be true for the border? Perhaps so. Will that be true for other aspects? I think so. There will be possibly fewer areas of cooperation or finding middle ground, right? Shivani was talking about uh, India, India <clears throat> indicating over the last couple of years since 2020 that um, you cannot separate the boundary question from the overall relationship anymore, right? Um, there is, as it as this is a message that has been repeated over and over again over the last two years from various people in India and in the Indian establishment. My understanding is that there is an acknowledgement on China's part that that this this is a changed a new reality, right? But that does not necessarily mean that they will. Uh, in the way that they operate with us, in the way that they operate on the boundary question moving forward, they are going to make any changes or amends, right, in their in their approach to the boundary question. That's that's primarily the thing. Now you asked if armed coexistence is the way forward, right? Um, does that mean that we will again see a repetition of Galwan that we saw in June 2021? Certainly hopes not. But does that mean that we will see long-standing standoffs, right? That we have seen in Galwan, we saw uh, in, in Doklam before that in 2017. Is this something that will become more frequent, more common? Possibly so. Um, we will possibly have fewer places where we can talk, uh, engage, find ways of what Shivani said, you know, between 1993 and 2013, largely. We found 
various ways of of uh, figuring out uh, confidence building measures right of of agreements to on on how to operate on the border right that is possibly something that we have left behind and it will be again very difficult to get to a place where these kind of measures can once again begin right i started with the caveat that that uh, it's it's very difficult to figure out where the relationship is going so on the on the same lines can this change yes it can but that will mean that the top leaderships of the two countries have to find a way to sit down and talk about these things uh which seems very unlikely at the present moment but at the same time we are in the middle of global realignments with with what is happening in russia ukraine uh the us china competition get, becoming a structural thing uh so there is a possibility that as the chips fall uh, india and china will once again find ways in which they say you know let's sit down let's talk about each other we've seen this happen before we've seen this happen in 1988 right so it is completely possible that will happen but it seems quite a distance away as of now that's the india part now as far as india's neighbors are concerned mm-hmm. uh one major thing that separates india's neighbors and their approach to china uh, uh from how india approaches china is that they don't have such severe structural issues with china that india has had right which which has allowed them uh to to let china in over the last decade couple of decades if we see there have been strategic inroads that china has made uh, in these countries but at the same time these countries have also exercised quite a great deal of agency not just with china but also with other actors including india as they operate in this countries but this tightrope walk is going to get more and more difficult i think as we move forward why is that that is because the the current if we look at the current global situation these are countries that are still is still uh, dealing with a pandemic induced slowdown right they are still dealing with the repercussions of the war in ukraine global inflation slowdown possible global recession uh and interestingly all of these countries are uh, uh going to face elections between this year and 2024 which means these all become very strong domestic issues now as these global divisions get deeper the competition among the various actors as it intensifies these countries are also already finding that there is a limit to how much china will do for them we saw that in sri lanka we are seeing it in as these countries try to get their loans restructured over bri and various other initiatives they are finding reluctance on china's part in doing that which basically means that even as newer initiatives come their way whether that uh, comes in the form of belt and road initiative again or the global security initiative global uh, development initiative that china has launched earlier this year these will be lucrative but they will also come with possibly harsher or more expectations from china's part as again as global divisions deepen china will expect these countries to side with them in, in global forums in united nations for example or other places so the tight rope walk that is going to get more and more difficult for these countries and they will have to spend that much more capital into convincing global players that they are not taking sides they are doing what they think is best for themselves and for countries for actors with with lower state capacity that is always a very difficult task i'm going to stop there so one naive question to you is what does india want from china so i mean if i were to just look at those meetings that prime minister modi having with president jinping there was a certain uh, air of informality i'm sure there was a structure uh, agenda and all but there was some hope that this i mean informal arrangement of meeting regularly and talking about issues will create opportunities to find common ground or also have clearly stated positions where they have differences and last few years as we know there's been a breakdown in that dialogue process and there's been a uh, armed conflict at the 
I mean, lives have been lost. Uh, but so that's one thing. The other, th- we have also now confronted as uh, the boundary issue with the broader relationship. On the other aspect of China, China is trying to become the preeminent power in the world. And there's been a big pushback from the Western bloc, but mainly, of course, led by the US. Uh, and the recent sanctions have been strong and expected to impact Chinese economy and their technology capabilities in a big way. So a lot has changed in the last few years. And so given all of this, what should India expect when we, when we talk to China on the issue of, say, border and the broader economic relationship is still one of the top trading partners for India. What would be the key elements of what we want from China? Are you talking about an ideal situation or are you talking about... Normative, it's a normative question. It's a normative question. Okay. Ideally, I think so if we separate the various parts of the relationship, right? There, There can be a relationship that is led by cooperation. There is a relationship that can be led by conflict. There's a relationship that can be led... By just coexistence, or so there can be a relationship that's uh, led by competition, right? If if these are the four ways in which we separate this. But let me just clarify here. Like Shivani did an answer. I mean, basically, I, I agree with it. Reject two extremes of possibility. Is that right? everything will be happy and everything will be yeah. I mean, uh, uh, cooperative, and also that uh, the possibility of uh, perhaps a full-fledged war and all we can. Uh, yeah. But in between, there are many possibilities. What would be? I mean. Normatively, but also given the situation, what is easier for us to try and uh, okay. get? Okay, great. yeah, that's that's what I was trying to understand. If you're talking, yeah, about no, no, I'm not talking so, about a okay. Pollyanna kind of right. <laughs> so, so I think the best case scenario that India might want from China is is a situation where the border does not become hot. No one is looking at at the at the boundary question and saying that you know this is a problem that will be solved anytime soon, right? But it, it is something it, India would certainly hope that it is something that becomes manageable. We do not see a Galwan June twenty twenty kind of situation, but we also don't see the kind of of standoff that we have seen since twenty twenty along the LSE. Uh, that is as far as the boundary goes. What else would India want? India would definitely want a situation where the terms of trade, right, they are not as lopsided. So greater market access in China for sure. I think these are two major bilateral prongs on which India would want to rest. Multilaterally, India would want China to not act as a roadblock in India's ambitions, uh, whether it comes to uh, uh, occupying a, a, a bigger role in, in the global stage or when it comes to issues related to terrorism, where India is trying to sanction uh, certain terrorists uh, uh, China not coming in the way. So these are, I think, some of the major asks that India could put forward and, and also good indicators to look for if we are trying to understand the direction of the relationship. In all three, we are not doing well. Right, so, I, right now, we are not doing well. Right now, we are not doing well. No, I turn to Sudra. <laughs> Staying with the foreign policy, uh, again, this is a conversation about broad questions and you make what you want to make of it. And, uh, so obviously, the foreign policy has gone through many changes in the last and five years. The issues that were there, the challenges of the 1947, the challenges that today are very different. So, uh, what what do you see are the key kind of strategic changes in India's foreign policy in the last 25 years? What is the journey that we have taken? Where have we come from? Where we are? And where do you see the next phase? Well, thanks, Rashid. I think this is a great conversation. I've just sat here and absorbed, and I just also occurs to me is that there's 
the threat of knowledge. And for a time, pull in some of the threads that were perhaps left. But so I think on the broader question of change and continuity, obviously they're mutually inclusive. So if you think about change and continuity in any foreign policy, and let's abstract away from India for a second. So conceptually, you know, the question that question that I've been asking myself is how do you even approach this question of change and continuity? Uh, it's a very tough question in any country. In certain countries, for instance, you know, big powers have been defeated. That has left to certain shocks and changes, mm. the way they think about life. Japan, Germany, right? Europe. Mm. Um, but in the case of India, actually, you know, it's that causality is actually very difficult to thread out. But there are two, three ways I think that we can do this. So one is, you know, and I'll make three points here. So if you think about India in the first 50 years of post-independence, those 50 years was about shaping the grammar of international relations. And India always shaped grammar, right? So even from the very beginning, from the late 40s to 50s, the it was a country that took the position for a variety of reasons, reasons largely because of its leaders, that it could punch above its weight. And it's a country that was convinced of the imperatives of its own exceptionality from day one, which is quite unique for a country like India. And it's worth thinking about why it's unique. And my own sense is it was unique in the late 40s because unlike most other colonial nations, Indians started thinking about foreign policy at least two and a half to three decades prior to actually achieve independence. So it had a handicap of about two and a half decades. Now, that handicap started with thinking about where do you want to be in that moment of freedom? And I think my sense is some of that was, of course, material concerns. We were a desperately poor country. We just look at irrigation, water spread. Um, and I think so development was, was key to the way in which we thought about life. Building institutions would be important. Keeping contact with the committee of nations that we struggled with for 150 years prior to that would be central. And that tension is actually quite important. I remember a note by Ramindranath Tagore to Nehru where he says is that listen, the one thing that you have to do is stay away from hungry nationalism. And what he meant by that is that the Commonwealth actually affords you a middle ground in foreign policy in the Cold War, right? However difficult that might be to be to reconcile with domestic concerns. And actually joining the Commonwealth was one of the... When was this letter? was maybe in the 30s. 30s. It was before Nehru actually went to China. Um, you know, he was in Manchuria when Second World War broke out. So it was prior to that. And Tagore had a range of kind of notes to Nehru to say, you know, how do you think about China, for instance? So I think, so I think, you know, if I think about, um, so, you know, the, so there's one stream that kind of led India to start thinking about, okay, how do we position ourselves? But equally, you know, conversations with people like Albert Einstein, with George Bernard Shaw. So there's a whole range of cast of actors, you know, that kind of led to what was finally called non-alignment. Um, but if I think about this question of change and continuity, what is it? So there's a lot of continuity in Indian foreign policy. We had a, it's a question of the differences in magnitude. We had a development problem in the 50s. We still have a development problem yes, today. Absolutely. We have an economic problem in the 50s. We have an economic problem today. We started thinking about trade more seriously by the 1960s, especially in the first modern ways of globalization following the oil shock of 1973, we're still thinking about trade. Today, trade is about half of our, maybe GDP, yes. or half of $3 trillion, yeah. trade to roughly GDP ratio. Trade to GDP ratio. But 
within these continuities, for instance, we've also seen what you may call magnificent changes, mm-hmm. right? So the early 70s, some of that started because of the economic crisis. Mm-hmm. By the late 90s, the change took place primarily because of geopolitics, right? And I think, you know, Shivani and Deep has talked about China. One of the most momentous decisions, I think, of the government in the late 80s was to pre-read the end of the Cold War mm-hmm. and was that significant visit to Beijing by Rajiv Gandhi. That visit took place not necessarily because of bilateral ties. It took place primarily because of Mikhail Gorbachev's visit to China, that to during the Tiananmen crisis, which made clear to Indians that the Sino-Russian relationship that had split in 1964 was not just in repair, but was being cemented after a hiatus of about three decades. And that completely changed the way in which we thought about our partners, our defense dependencies with Russia, our border with China. And from 88 roughly till about 2017, you have one familiar line that determines the equation with China, which is localize the border and build and deepen the broader relationship, right? But I think 88 was a period. But for me, the key period of change was the 90s in many ways. That economic liberalization under a minority government, it should be said, right? It was a minority government that took one of the bravest political moves in the history of the country. Um, it is the wind in that sail that saw us through till the 21st century. So US-India nuclear deal in many ways, which was momentous for symbolic reasons, but also to unlock our relationship with 45 countries who were part of the IEA. Many of them global north countries, many of them high capital countries, many of them trading nations. So it is that boost of the US-India nuclear deal that gave us these opportunities with uh, with, the, with these kind of 40 countries that we trade with today. I think we're in a curious place today. I think there is a marked shift to the way in which we are reading and writing foreign policy today, especially since, say, 2014, right, to the past. I'm still not sure what it, that is. It is difficult to put a pin on it because it takes time to make that assessment. It's still going on. Still going on. But what I will say is the one difference is rather than shaping grammar, we're today writing grammar. Mm. That realization has been internalized is that today India is not punching beyond its weight. It is now in a different weight category, mm-hmm. right? And it is not to say that the material base and the weight category that we are fighting in, in terms of international politics is synchronized. It's not. But actually what we're beginning to see is that foreign policy is creating new grammar to push the nation forward in particular ways with a clear sense of interest. Now, interests are socially constructed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not a given. So China's interests are different to ours. It comes from history, politics. Um, But, you know, my own sense is that we are now writing new grammar. And I'll just, you know, square up with a couple of threads over here. So what does this push and pull tension between writing grammar and broadening the base of your kind of material needs mean, right, In, in real terms? So if you take something like, say, semiconductors that Kunark was talking on, Today is very clear that foreign policy is not an international relations problem. It's a land problem, mm. right? It was always about manufacturing. So the codependencies between your economic base and foreign policy was always intertwined. The Chinese understood it. <laughs> Look what the Chinese did in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, they understood that equation. Today, Vietnam has a deputy prime minister essentially for Samsung or for Intel, right? Today, I think my sense is that we're at that place where we're beginning to coordinate is very complicated stack, mm. right? And my, if you, my concern 
is that the bottom part of the stack may not be able to keep up in terms of reform and change with the grammar that we are already beginning to articulate. So we are in that place caught between somewhere between Deng Xiaoping and say, Ujintao, right? Mm. Where this is not Deng Xiaoping anymore, right? We are creating grammar and for good reasons, but we need that internal base within India in order to not just catch up, but to synchronize with what we want to do at Geneva, in New York, in Paris, in Berlin and other such places. So today, when you talk about land, for instance, it's a foreign policy problem. When you talk about semiconductors, it's a foreign policy problem. So that's the way, I mean, broadly, I and mean, it's a very confused answer. So it's a very uh, helpful answer. I think ties many threads together. But I also want to ask you another broad question. <laughs> is that India is rising. India will hopefully become a great power at some point. Uh, there are some people who believe India should not aspire to be, but whether we aspire to be, you can become a great power. What kind of power should India be in the global order? Like, we are a large enough country that even if per capita incomes are not as good, but an aggregate will be a major player in the world. We already are in some ways, as you are saying. What kind of a global order that we should try to, what kind of grammar should we write to try to write? Or what should be the key elements of that grammar? What should be the kind of values that underpin that grammar? So I think one is, I think... This is your view. Your view. Yeah, this is just my personal view. I think, <laughs> I don't think... India ought to, should, or actually is trying to mimic what great power actually means and the way it's been exercised, say, in the last thousand years of history. So if you take great power, right? So what does great power mean apart from being, say, a middle power or just a power? That means that you have the ability to influence change outside of your geographical and political borders, right? It means that you, at some level, have embraced either hegemony or hierarchy. And the two sometimes are exclusive, right? There is a hierarchy when it comes to international structures, and then there's hegemony. Hegemony is about being a bull in a china shop, right? Hierarchy is about influencing um, international structures, right? And today, actually, what China is doing is somewhere between hierarchy and hegemony. Um, but my own sense is that for a country like India, I don't think we can or should be a great power in the way that expansionist power in Europe or in the West have been in the 20th and 21st century. I have a much more conservative view of power, which is you need to have the power. And by power, if you take power in, say, two different ways, you have material power, and then you have the power of ideas. Mm -hmm. And one will shape the other. Your, Your growth in the economy shapes the way in which you think about your role in space negotiations. The equity that you have in Geneva or the equity that you have on the Biological Weapons Convention or in getting a Lockheed Martin or getting a Boeing or getting foreign manufacturers to come to India, right? But your power should be used for individual needs within your country. That is still our clear challenge, is growing that economic base and using international relations to grow that base and not using the base to grow your international profile today. Right? And a lot of that will come in areas of investments, FDIs, all the kinds of things that we'll discuss over here. Lastly, I will make the point is, you know, this is a matter of heated debate today, it seems. The view seems to be is that as India grows, it will automatically be an expansionist power. I don't see any evidence of that. We're a highly conservative power, right? Till today, for instance, you know, apart from three case studies in the last four decades, we have not used the instrument of military force 
outside of our political boundaries. Yeah. And that too, they were done in the late 80s for very specific regional reasons, right? Um, and I think that is actually a very healthy attitude to what power actually means. And it also goes back to the fact that, you know, for us in India, whether it's the 1950s or whether it's today, your primary challenge is still continental. Your primary challenge is still your land boundaries, right? Which in some ways will also shape the way in which you think about the world out there. Yeah, and the primary challenge is fear of your own people first, which is right. probably not undermined by some of the expansions. But where I will say is that where we need to do work in India is figure out what exactly are those principles and values that we want to articulate through this new grammar that we're writing. Right now, we're painting a broad brush. But at some level, that canvas has to be painted. People have to be able to see what that canvas is. If you're painting an apple, people should be able to see that it's an apple. Right now, at some level, we may be painting oranges. Other people are seeing pineapples. Yeah, and that's applicable in all the domains in which we're working. Whether it's our role in semiconductor, whether it's about data, and our role as an data economy and we provide services to the world and they provide here. What are the values that we bring and then what, what is the trust that basically is underpinned by those values? And those are the terms on which we will participate in the global order. And on this, I mean, I want to now turn to Priya. I haven't turned to, to you till now is that you're working on a very interesting area on the future of technology basically and specifically in the area of digital currencies and uh, uh, where we are headed in terms of uh, uh, whether private or central bank-backed digital currencies. And this is an area in which India has, in recent times, made quite a few moves. Uh, RBI has also come out with a been clear intention to implement this. There's been effort at the wholesale front to do this, but also perhaps in the retail market, the digital currency will be able to become, become available. So, and why is it that India is trying to do this? I and mean, why is it India is trying to do a digital currency in the, in the first place? Uh, how do you think it's going to help our jurisdiction like India and you know, of its domestic requirement, but also in the global setting? How will it help in the international payments and those kind of problems? And uh, another long-term question that do you think in the future all rupees will be digital or will we still have some physical cash to carry around. Thanks, Yash. Um, broad questions. I'll try my best to answer. Um, I think to the first question, in relation to the first question that you asked, why is India uh, sort of embarking on this journey, right? I think I think the first thing to for us to remember is that we're still at the beginning of this digital currency journey. In terms of statistics, uh, I think there are about 105 central banks around the world equating to 95% of the global GDP that are researching central bank digital currencies. But if you actually look at who's actually rolled a CBDC out, that is just about 10 countries. That's uh, Bahamas. Uh, that's the Eastern Caribbean Currency Union, which is seven countries, um, Nigeria last year and Jamaica this year. And of course, um, you know, what is also talked about a lot here is the Chinese pilot um, China's pilot on digital yuan. Uh, but these are really the live rollouts that we're really talking about. So we're still at the beginning of this journey, right? Uh, and when it comes to motivations, there's a lot of literature that has come out in the past two, three years, especially uh, on uh, from central banks, from a variety of stakeholders who are looking to understand what are the motivations, what are the opportunities, challenges, 
uh, designs, design choices, technological choices, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of literature in this area. But in terms of trying to look at what might be some of the uh, motivations, these are also many. Uh, they're dependent on uh, the jurisdiction, the country that we're talking about, and perhaps even the local circumstances. Uh, so just to, um, at a conceptual level, to give you a, to give you an example, from a central bank perspective, one of the reasons that has been talked about is if you have central banks issue a digital currency directly to retail consumers, uh, perhaps it could make the transmission of monetary policy to households and firms easy. But it's not really a panacea, but it also comes with challenges. So, for instance, what happens to the intermediaries that we've been relying on so far, like banks, right? Uh, If central banks were to take this uh, particular uh, policy goal onto their own, then there may be issues of disintermediation. Where will the banks go? Where will the other intermediaries go? What will happen to them? Another issue could be what will happen to central banks' own balance sheet? What will happen to its capabilities? Is it really, let's take the example of India, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Does the RBI really have the capability to service 1.4 billion people if it were to directly issue a digital rupee, right? So that's one motivation with attendant challenges from a central bank perspective, right? In terms of retaining monetary sovereignty or monetary policy transmission. Uh, From a sovereign nation perspective, generally, you could say um, there are opportunities to sort of... um, uh, make cross-border payments more efficient because today cross-border payments have a lot of high transaction costs, whether it's in terms of speed, uh, in terms of cost. So um, could this be an opportunity where CBDCs could, could play a role? Uh, and in fact, uh, um, there are a few projects afoot um, when it comes to cross-border use cases of CBDCs. And one of them is uh, this uh, MCBDC bridge project, uh, which is between uh, the PBOC in China, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Bank of Thailand, the uh, Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub as well. And uh, just, I think, maybe two or three weeks ago, they completed the phase three of their uh, project. And uh, they've actually concluded um, 22 million worth of transactions, real real world transactions, forex transactions. Um, one of the earlier uh, uh, phases uh, of the same project um, found that you could cut the transaction cost when it comes to speed as well as um, the cost itself in into half. Right. So there there there, there is um, there are re- there are real opportunities here for CBDCs to play a role. Uh, at the cross-border level, which obviously, you know, uh, from a sovereign nation perspective is useful too. Um, But the point that I go back to is that this depends on the jurisdiction. This depends on the country. Um, One of the surveys that was undertaken by the Bank of International Settlements on what the motivations are has found that these motivations could broadly differ between emerging markets and advanced nations. So, for example, advanced nations are probably looking at it from a future uh, readiness perspective or from a payments efficiency perspective. Uh, But um, when it comes to emerging markets, perhaps they're looking at it from a financial inclusion perspective or maybe as a replacement for cash, right? So those could differ. But even there, if I take the example of China or Sweden, they're looking at digital currency because cash use is dwindling. One is an emerging nation, one is an advanced nation. So essentially, to uh, sort of put this whole thing together, when it comes to motivations of why countries are looking at CBDCs, one is that we're still at the beginning of the journey, right? We still yet to find specific use cases where um, central bank digital currencies might, might have a clear advantageous role to play in addition to the other uh, you know, payments infrastructure that we might have. Um, the other is that there is no one-size-fits-all. And this was actually reiterated in the recent concept note that RBI released as well, that there is no one-size-fits-all, one motivation that fits all. Um, 
And so far as India is concerned, I think I'll go back to what the finance minister, you know, uh, mentioned when she announced the rollout of the digital rupee at the budget uh, earlier this year. One of the key things that she mentioned was, um, you know, uh, reducing the cost of cash management. Uh, right. The other is sort of giving a boost to digital economy. This is also reiterated by the recent concept note that RBI released. In addition to several other motivations, including, again, you know, cross-border payment efficiency, um, you know, again, financial inclusion, moving to a less cash economy, maybe not a cashless economy, but a less cash economy. And again, the cost of distributing cash, printing, distributing cash was, I think, about 5,000 crores uh, in the previous uh, financial year. So I think the what is being envisaged that there is a clear advantage here if you move to a digital way of, um, or a digital fiat currency. Um, so that's on the first question. I'll stop there in case you want to sort of... Uh, yeah, so I mean, the question uh, that you mentioned that uh, whether the central bank will have the capability to service 1.3 million people with digital rupee. And this question of capability comes up across different domains in which we work and what are the problems, what are the constraints. If you look at RBI as a central bank, what are the capability constraints in actually servicing digital rupee? What is, what is so difficult about them? Because we have very complex payment systems which are working quite well. And uh, those capabilities can be utilized for uh, generating and servicing uh, digital rupees. Is there anything additional capability that is required which may be missing and which will constrain the ability to service this at scale? So today, if you look at how a monetary structure uh, is, and largely across, it's not just India, right? It's a two-tier structure. Mm-hmm. You have the central bank, um, and then you have the banks and the payment intermediaries right. and so on and so forth, right? And the payment intermediaries and banks are where are the sort of customer-facing layer, yes. if you will, right? So we transact um, with the these bank. intermediaries. The banks in turn sort of settle their balances and their balance sheets at the wholesale layer, Yes. through the reserve accounts that they have at the yeah, central yeah. bank. Now, um, actually, there is no clear... Um, um, these are all choices that when you design a CBDC, that will have to be made. You have a tiered structure. You yeah. could have a tiered structure. Yeah. And in fact, most of the pilots, if you see, are following uh, that tiered yes. structure because they, there, is, there, there, is a, there is a need for not to create any disruption or yeah. you know disintermediation, right? And that's also something that RBI has said in its concept note that we are very cognizant that we don't want to, when we design, disrupt. Uh, but if you take the direct CBDC structure, which is also, you know, the most uh, classical or purist structure or design that you could have, it is essentially me having a bank account with RBI and all of us and each of us in the country, right? But that will mean the RBI will then have to take on not just the functions that it just does today as a supervisor with its inflation targeting goal or all the various you know goals that it has as a central bank, but it'll also have to act as the bank, commercial bank, or the payment intermediary, or whoever, you know, with whom we are transacting today. So that will require a lot of definitely, you know, uh, an upgrade of its own capabilities. Mm-hmm. There are also other questions that have come up that have uh, you know, in terms of let's say if um, for instance, one of the goals for issuing a digital rupee or a CBDC is for fiscal transfers. Will there be a blurring of the functions of a central bank as a central bank with, you know, or, or rather in terms of its independence, right? If it has to sort of then uh, start performing functions of social uh, benefit transfers or fiscal transfers, there are those kind of questions also that come up. But primarily, do we want to break this two-tier structure, which we, which has held, you know, strong for the last, whatever, 200, 300 years? That's one question. The other is, do we want, if we do want to 
go through the or go you know towards a direct cbdc structure then what will it entail in terms of the capabilities that a central bank or the role or even the responsibilities that a central bank will have to take over and is, is our rbi ready for that but world over largely it's been uh, at this point in time the two tier structure that most uh, banks have been researching or looking at or even piloting at this stage what uh, i am saying i hope that answers your question so are you a votary of the digital rupee do you think we should implement it at scale the direct cbdc model no um, i mean any model but yeah. basically making digital rupee widely available at retail level at a retail level uh, to be very honest uh, i mean I, i don't have a value judgment as such whether it's good bad i think my question is mostly around what specific role would it really play uh, right in a country like india because we already have upi and i think we've discussed this previously as well we already have upi i think um, it uh, it clocked about 7 billion transactions last month in october and about in terms of uh, vol- um, volume Uh, i think about 12 crore or so um doing fantastically well uh, it still has some way to go when it comes to uh, its penetration in the rural um you know parts uh and but that apart um we're also now sort of looking to take upi beyond our borders uh right so for me in my mind um uh, what sort of doesn't sort of square the circle is that you have this product which is working really well and you know you're giving it all the push that you can so where exactly would a digital rupee sort of in the retail context uh where would a digital rupee fit is the question that i have and uh, well we will see a pilot in about a month that's what rbi has said uh so hopefully we'll have some answers but i think irrespective of whether we have a pilot or not i don't think just because we are going to uh sort of embark on this journey it's a it's a given that we will have a retail cbdc because there are many countries like denmark australia canada who have done their research i think some of them have even went up to proof of concept stage maybe and said no this doesn't make sense for us because we have very sophisticated uh you know payment infrastructures and payment systems um some of them actually come back and there are still you know like australia it has just started a general purpose cbdc pilot so this is like i said at the beginning I think this is going to be sort of a step by step journey where we figure out what is the specific role that us you know digital rupee will play in the retail context but having said that I think it does make sense to at least go down this road and I think this is best summed up in the words of the deputy governor uh, T Ravi Shankar in one of his speeches last year that looks in all likelihood CBDCs will be an arsenal in the central bank uh, or a tool in the central bank arsenal so if there is that push I think uh, it's just makes sense for us to and especially with the wealth of experience we have when it comes to building digital infrastructures to sort of also be on this journey. Put it very shortly, I don't have a value judgment. I think for me it's it's fascinating sort of try and understand how do we or where do we see the role of digital rupee in the retail context. In the cross border context I think it's a lot clearer. When I you do have a judgment I just adopt it. <laughs> so um, yeah, let's see. So I wanted to provoke a value judgment. <laughs> so one of the concerns, and I don't know much about CBDCs, is that at least theoretically, because all cash transactions now become digitized, they're easier to monitor, right? And I think once that happens, we run into the public choice problem of investigative agencies wanting to monitor everything from the point of view of preventing corruption or tax evasion or variety of other activities right but then the question is 
why should or is the cost of or is the benefit of doing this worth the cost that we are going to impose directly and indirectly in terms of loss of privacy, easier monitoring, the cost of actually implementing a digital currency and the benefit of being able to monitor these transactions more easily, right? So if you look at it from that point of view, there is a value judgment to be made. So I was just curious to ask you what you thought of that. Um, Well, it is definitely a trade-off that I think not just as any country that's looking to sort of issue uh, digital currency, which is in addition to trying to perform functions of money is also going to be a store of information, right? So it's an inescapable sort of question and a trade-off that any country that's looking to issue will have to look at. Uh, and it's a difficult one, right? Um, and I think I would sort of go back to one of the points you made earlier in terms of uh, needing to have a certainty when it comes to privacy and data protection. That's a clear lacuna. And I think that's very important in the in the context of this question as well. So assuming that we go down the route of saying, and the indications are that we are going down this route, we do have a pilot, wholesale pilot now, we will have a retail pilot. Of course, it may happen that we will not find a retail use case uh, useful for India at all. That might happen. Uh, but we are now on that path. Um, so given that we are on that path, this is a very important trade-off and a very important question that we need to actually think about now. And there in that context, the point that you raised also becomes important in terms of how we're going to, what is the use that the, that we're going to put this particular information trail to? How are we going to protect privacy, right? So those rules will also have to sort of come about in tandem with whatever it is that we're doing in terms of pilots and other, you know, sort of thinking you around. We're going to live off-grid completely. Yeah. <laughs> Only digital. Yeah. So now... But my, Sense is that I think uh, uh, one of the motivations that has been articulated and since the beginning by the RBI is that you're looking at a central bank digital currency as a sort of counter to the proliferation of private digital currencies, at least in the Indian context, right? I don't completely agree with it because to the extent that the crypto private digital currencies assets are operating in the currency space, then yeah, it makes sense. But they're also doing a whole bunch of other things in the non-currency landscape, right? So you'd still need to sort of tackle with the issues that come from um, their sort of role there. Uh, but uh, if we are indeed looking at, um, you know, the digital rupee as a counter, then uh, we are already on that path. And this is an inescapable sort of, uh, you know, point that we'll have to counter encounter. Thanks. So, if I could turn to you, Rudra, <laughs> finally, and basically, you've know, seen that meme, uh, how it started, how it's going. <laughs> I mean, um, you took over Carnegie India about four years ago, and um, basically, since then, there's been a lot of changes in this organization, and most of us joined uh, after that. And uh, so, if you could just, uh, you've heard this conversation that we've been having, and Got a, you know what we're doing anyway, but this was one kind of condensed opportunity to talk to each other about what we do. I actually learned a lot more than I knew about some of the colleagues what they're doing. So, uh, where do you see? I mean, the role of Carnegie in India, the the think tanks in India, but also India's role. I mean, in India's journey towards becoming a prosperous, secure country. What what is the role that think tanks play at this moment? And 
what are the specific ways in which Carnegie India is contributing or should contribute going forward? Some reflections on that. No, thanks, sir. So, yeah. so, you know, structurally, obviously, Carnegie India has grown quite a bit in the last four years. I mean, you know, we grew from about four or five of us in 2018 to a team of almost 30 now. But more importantly than that, capacity number is the intellectual growth of the organization. So, I think, you know, today we have these three broad programs. There's plenty of intellectual curiosity and work within those programs and lines. So the first question, I think, you know, my own sense and largely I'd like to think that at Carnegie India, everyone can have a view on the future of the organization. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> but my own view would be to spend the next couple of years to actually intellectually consolidate where we are rather than looking at kind of... Um, sort of cerebral growth right now. That that would be my view. Within the broader structure of where we are. So we may want that still that may still mean hire more people. But I think the intellectual lines of inquiry still need to be consolidated. Second is I think every think tank, actually every think tank has a different way of functioning. That's one thing I've figured out. Um, and they have different motivations. So for me, if and I don't think so I don't represent a house view here, right? I mean, you will have a different view of what you think Carnegie India should yeah. be doing. Or Narkel have a different view. But my view is, I think, there are three things that we are doing and that we should continue to do. One is to constantly shake the needle, shake the policy needle, right? Sometimes, and 90% of the time, you'll be unsuccessful. That's the hit rate. But it's that 10% that you are successful that matters. And I think when you're shaking the needle, the process matters as much as the end state. So there will, some, there will be something that happens in that process when you're trying to shake or inject new ideas into a particular set of policy imperatives that you will not have any visibility to on. But I think so, you know, as long as we are true to that process and don't constantly worry about the outcome, my own sense is that, you know, um, we'll be able to make and even define a change down the line. The second is, I guess, at some point is, you know, if we think about forums such as this, is to share ideas. Mm. And that is something that perhaps, you know, we need to do even more of, is to have these open-ended conversations. We've got a great group of people within the organization. Each one of us have networks outside of it. We need to keep that bridge open because ideas are not going to germinate. It's like quantum computing. You know, that code is not going to crack in Minnesota. It's going to crack with a partnership in Tokyo, in Delhi, and other such places. So I think we need to keep that kind of bridge open constantly. Um, and the third, I'd say, is at some level, you know, India is a low capacity state. That's the reality of, you know, the landscape that we're working in. This is not Washington, D.C. or London or Berlin. It's a very different kind of administrative landscape. So think tanks, and I say this with all humility, where possible is that we have to also play our role in supporting state capacity. And sometimes that could just mean by teaching or by knowledge transfer. And sometimes that could mean just getting a little bit more hands-on in certain kind of policy vehicles. But before that, and you know, you can think of editing this out if you want, but I think it'll be a shame if we let Soyash go um, let we, let without that giving shame. us some <laughs> thinking on... Shame. No. Um, so, you know, Soyash, I mean, you know, you've been an anchor at this institution now for a very long time. Before that, you had more than a decade of experience in a variety of um, boutique areas from bankruptcy to thinking big about the economy to finance 
So if I just ask you yet another broad question, what do you make of India's current economic positioning, right? And, you know, if we are to kind of move to this $5 trillion or $10 trillion economy, and it seems that at least there are a lot of imperatives moving in that direction, what are your reflections? Like how do, do you leapfrog? Are there clearly, as has come through in this conversation, there are factor market problems, there are regulatory problems, but what is it that holds us back and what is it that gives you promise when it comes to the growth of our economy for everybody? Yeah, so, I mean, in the spirit of asking broad questions, <laughs> I'm glad you've also stayed with that uh, spirit. So, if I look back at India's economic journey uh, since independence, uh, we started off reasonably well in the 50s, although the strategy that we took to, I mean, build our economy and to grow our capabilities in the economy was very much state-led in many ways. It paid off some dividends for some time, but 60s and 70s were very bad for us. I've written about it. Our relative position in the world actually declined significantly in the 60s and 70s, and we were anyway not starting off on a very good footing. But in the last three decades or so, we have actually uh, done reasonably well. We have built capabilities in a variety of areas. In fact, we are punching below our weight in manufacturing, but we are punching well above our weight in services. There are very interesting narrow areas in which we have built capabilities, which nobody could have predicted earlier that we would build capabilities and basically uh, service the world, not just India, for example, in IT services. Uh, there were uh, happy accidents that went into it, but there was a lot of deliberate choice that was exercised in building capabilities, allowing people to build businesses, uh, in having policies that enable that to happen. But even now, we are a lower middle income country. And even though in the aggregate we talk about trillions of dollars of economy, it looks very good. And yes, it does matter in foreign policy matters that you're a large economy, so people will give you a certain uh, uh, weight in the conversations and importance. But as far as the human welfare of Indians is concerned, we are we have we're still at the beginning of the journey. As a low middle income country, we have a long way to go in terms of improving um, the welfare and well-being of our people, at least in the material aspects. And if you look at the data on material well-being, forget about spiritual and social aspects for a moment. They are very important. They are very important to me. <laughs> but if you look at material well-being, pretty much every variable you can look at very highly correlates with per capita income. Pretty much every there is no no single important variable material well-being. It doesn't very strongly correlate with per capita. So I focus only and only on say growth. Economic growth is very important. Everything else is there, and there are important questions to be had about inequality, this and that. But unless and until you get economic growth going, which we did for a very long time, and uh, if you look at the last decade or so, uh, even before the pandemic hit India, India's economy had been slowing down quite significantly. The year before the pandemic, the growth was about four percent, which is very poor uh, for a Country that is catching up. We are not at the productivity frontier. We are catching up with countries that are rich and we should be able to grow, grow rapidly. Uh, then the pandemic hit and we've recovered. Fortunately, we've recovered quickly and uh, it's it, it's been, uh, I mean, a little uh, better than I had expected in terms of recovery. And we've uh, now basically gone back to the pre pandemic level. The question is where do we go from here? So my own reading is that when you see four or five years of consistent decline in growth before the pandemic, 
you need to think about what were the factors that were driving that decline in growth. Have those those factors gone away suddenly? Because you do have a post-pandemic recovery, but is that an illusion that you are seeing that you have you had a huge decline for one year and you are now recovering from there? And recovery gives you these very interesting year-on-year numbers, right? Of growth, which look very impressive. But have those factors gone away? So you mentioned factor market issues. Have the issues in India land markets, labor markets gone away? Yes, I agree that to some extent informality, low state capacity, state looking the other way, deal making addresses some of the problems. But those problems don't go away permanently. And if you want to make long-term investments, you need to solve the policy problems in these domains. And we have solved in some areas, as I discussed earlier, also in bankruptcy, very important exit, giving a sound, easy exit uh, problem. But I work on financial sector. Uh, banking se- sector reforms have been stalled for many decades, now, many years now. Uh, we have done very well on equity markets, but our bond markets are not very well functioning. Our land markets, our labor markets have a lot of problems. Our business laws are full of very unreasonable criminal criminalization provisions and all of that. Uh, so that's one part of the puzzle. Those things have to change and they'll have to change. I'm not saying they have to change all at the same time, but they, we have to see what the binding constraints are. Like in labor market, there are some more important issues than others. In land market, there are some more important issues than others. In banking and other areas, there are some more issues. Than others. So we will address those and then move forward and then change maybe more a decade from now and uh, co-evolve along with the, as the economy goes along. So that's one. The other thing that I, I worry about and I write about it all the time is the way in which state interacts with capital in the enforcement of regulations and laws. So, and those involved in broad range of regulatory laws and tax laws and all that exist in India. And I worry that over the last decade or so, this relationship has become quite hostile. So I've done work on tax disputes. I've done work on anti-corruption enforcement and all. Where I worry that a lot of uh, reasonable economic activities are being criminalized or seen as suspiciously by the state. And that doesn't make for a happy uh, environment in which to make I mean, long-term investments. You could get some. We should all, I will look at aggregates because newspapers report this one firm invested in Massachusetts state. It looks very good, but in the aggregate, it doesn't really mean that much. Aggregate numbers of investments in India in the last uh, 10 years have declined basically. Private investment has declined quite substantially and uh, it's not picked up for a decade. And that's something I worry about. And I see, I mean, as my hypothesis and reasonable persons can disagree because the same facts can be reconciled with different narratives. My own narrative is these reform have kind of slowed down. And the other is the state capital relations. Across a number of regulatory and tax enforcement domains have become worse. And we need to uh, restore them to some extent. I talk a lot to businesses. They talk about how easy it has become for state to come after businesses and harass them on making unreasonable demands. But I'll share one statistic with you, which I wrote about also, is that in the tax disputes that happen, in the OECD countries, on an average, 70% of the cases are won by the uh, government. Most of the disputes, I mean, go through the appeal process, 70% of the time, government wins. In India, government only wins 13% of the time. 13, 1, 3. Most of the dispute loses, but still it makes the claims, it goes into dispute, trillions of rupees are getting, getting stuck, and all that has increased very substantially in the last one decade. So there is a agenda of formal reform of policies, building state capacity, implement uh, reasonable laws. And then there's an agenda of 
actually signaling to the private uh, capital that the implementation of the laws and regulations will be reasonable and keeping in view of what the I mean, uh, realities of the business in, in India are. And I think that these both have to go hand in hand. Otherwise, we can't go too long for informality driving our growth. Because at some point of time, we need to build formal institutions. We have to have some kind of a respect for the raw rule of law. A lot of growth in India happens because simply because the bad laws are not implemented. And uh, and, such, and when they are implemented, we see all these kind of problems. So growth is a top priority and you need a certain degree of pragmatism in the way you make the policies implement them, build institutions to implement them to be able to achieve that growth. And there's one country that you can learn from a lot is China. China actually has, now I have some doubts about where it is going, but for four decades, it kept evolving its policy and institutional landscape along with economic growth that it achieved. We also did it quite well and we are still doing many things right. It's not a doomsday kind of a pronunciation. We do, we do reasonably well going forward, even if you don't go to everything right. But there's a big delta. So if you grow at, say, your per capita income grows at 4%, uh, then it will basically uh, uh, basically double in 18 years or so. If it grows at 6%, it will double in uh, in 12 years. Right? That's a big difference. You're, you're talking about 6 years uh, earlier, you will get, get to uh, uh, a double per capita income. And those deltas really matter. Each percent percentage point of growth really makes a big difference in the nation's uh, destiny. And the utility gains are enormous. I mean, the, the, the human welfare consequences are just stunning. And I can't think of anything else in my... <laughs> I've been also thinking about economic growth, as a famous economist uh, said. And I think we have many foundations. So if you look at um, the kind of products that we make and export, and what are the different products that are related to those products? So we have a very, we are very interesting. We have a large economy, so we make many, many things. Right? We're not a big player in global trade, but we make some cars, make some drugs, vaccines. We do IT exports, we have agriculture exports. We import crude oil, uh, refine it, and uh, sell it abroad. We are a big player on that. Uh, SR and uh, Reliance and all they do that. We have a big capability on infrastructure. Some of our infrastructure companies are now uh, building infrastructure for in other countries as well. The question is, how do we use these capabilities and do much, much better? How do we build other, use other IT capabilities and make the next Google for the world? How do we convert our uh, drug manufacturers into the next generation drug discovery? Those are the questions. And those questions will require the kind of I mean, reform that we talked about and also a kind of state capital relation that are conducive to making long-term investments, making big bets. And uh, I was talking in this podcast because it was from Interpreting India. I had a conversation with Noshad Forbes. And in his book, he makes a very interesting point that a flourishing economy imports everything. So it imports uh, technology. At the at its peak, England was a peak of industrial revolution. England was importing technology from Germany and other European countries because it is able to use the technologies in a more commercially when, uh, useful way. It imports talent from the world. It imports the best people from the world. You know? It imports capital from the world because you will be able to deploy the capital better. And so it is very important to link our flourishing with opening our economy, opening our society, making it easier for visas to be given to talented people from all over the world to come here. That requires not just policy change. It requires a change in uh, how we see others, how we accommodate them and how, they, how we make it comfortable for them to come and live here. 
And that's what it takes to build a flourishing economy. It's not something which is separate from the larger society and cultural conversations that we are having of being an open society. And uh, so if you want to get to become a rich country, we'll have to become a in some ways, the open country also, while keeping our traditions and culture and you know, civilizational values, uh, 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 the best of them at least alive with those traditions. But we need to be open to the world. We have capital controls. We need to find ways to kind of <laughs> ease them in a manner that is uh, suiting our, our interests at least. Uh, we need to have much more free flow of people into India and come and build businesses, feel comfortable that they will not be appropriated. Uh, they will they will innovate here. They will live here. It's a wonderful country to live in. In many ways, it will make it more comfortable for people. We should import technologies from all over the world. We should get everybody to help participate in our uh, so a pursuit of prosperity. You know, and so yeah. So there is a policy puzzle. There is a institutional puzzle. But there is also, uh, I think, political cultural uh, puzzle which we need to kind of uh, address. And uh, on the political, I think. What we've seen uh, in India, I just want to end with this, is that our best growth period was the coalition era, where we had coalition governments at the center. And uh, I see some, I mean, uh, it's not just happenstance. I, I have a theory about why that may actually have some kind of causality also. You had coalition governments where regional parties were quite powerful. They had some say in national policy making. They could also solve problems for national government. So if a reform is to be done, which could be opposed by one particular state's stakeholder, those parties could cut deals with the stakeholders who are going to lose, lose and get the reform going. It's had a literature on this, how coalition governments made it easier to have sustainable reforms. But now we have a dominant party at the center, which has basically a, a fair bit of power at the central level. In this political economy, we need to find ways to have ensure that state-level voices are heard more in the national policymaking. State-level interests are kind of uh, protected. We saw this in the farm law failure, right? The center thought it could just do what it wanted and basically get the laws done. One and a half states' political economy basically utilized that effort. By the way, I think the, some of the laws, at least the provisions, some of the provisions would have probably benefited uh, the agricultural economy in a big way. It was a pity that this happened. But this is the way political economy works. You can't, uh, even if you're a dominant party in the center, it's a democracy. People can inflict huge costs on you, even a small number of them. So we need to harness our political, uh, democ democratic kind of setup. How do we harness that? to grow? China's system had a completely different logic of harnessing its party system and its decentralization, its meritocratic uh, approach to a promotion in the party. We have to harness our democratic, and we have to harness our cultural strength, and we have to harness our technological institutional strength. Because we'll grow as India. And each of these, I think we need to kind of, I don't know whether that answers your question. No, I think it's a lot of food for thought. And I think in terms of, I mean, I think when you see government and as a think tank, each one of us work in very different parts of government, policy communities, etc. Is also, is the disaggregated way in which sometimes policy is constructed. Right. I would like to think that there is some architecture somewhere. But I really doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're just not seeing is, I think what is worrying, if I think about the first 75 years and the next 75 years, I think about the growth, for instance, is being able to, like, you know, Polak says something is, someone from our Indian semiconductor mission should have representation from someone from the Ministry of External Affairs. Right. That binding, for instance, just a microscopic example, and I just hope that, you know, we are able to get that coordinated because what you're talking about, I think, is the larger vision is, I would like to think of even the political leadership of growth right now. But 
how we unpack that and perhaps that's the role that think tanks can sometimes play is is not just figuring out the ideas puzzle but also figuring out the administrative kind of puzzle um, in administrative languages i don't know so yeah and i more in emergent ways like it, it, it's not like somebody has to design an architecture but let it emerge let it let what works actually emerge and be be used up and not don't stop it from emerging you know? yeah. like if so if you see a flow of 10000 entrepreneurs applying for visas to india to live long term and build businesses here you know okay then see that as a good thing don't uh, put any logical burden on to it and uh, so i think the, there are many things that we uh, can emerge without having a thought on plan because you know that it's working and you are allowing it to have work and then it architecture emerges out so yeah that's all for the 75th episode of interpreting india thank you dear listeners for joining us today you heard from many of my colleagues today and if you want to learn more about your their work and their interests you can visit carnegieindia.org to make sure you don't uh, miss uh, future episodes of interpreting india please subscribe to carnegie india on apple podcast spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from you can also follow us on twitter facebook linkedin and instagram thank you for listening see you next time